You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com All right, friends, welcome back. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I have a message for you. Be afraid. Be very afraid. (laughs) The UN commands it of you. The United Nations is asking you to supplicate in fear once again of that dreaded scourge which they can bring up out of their magic hat anytime they need it. They can pull it out of their sleeve as their ace card and lay it out on the table, and it will trump anything that you have. So you must simply bow down with fear, because the UN has issued a global alert over a new SARS-like virus. And this comes from no less a reputable source than MSNBC itself, so I guess we should take it deadly seriously. A Qatari man is treated for disease almost identical to the one that killed Saudi Arabian earlier this year. Quote, a new virus belonging to the same family as the SARS virus that killed 800 people in 2002 has been identified in a Qatari man who has recently been in Saudi Arabia, the World Health Organization said Sunday. The United Nations health body, which issued a statement through its global alert and response system, said tests on the patient, a 49-year-old Qatari man, confirmed the presence of a new or novel coronavirus. It said the UK scientists compared gene sequences of the virus from the Qatari patient with samples of virus sequenced by Dutch scientists from lung tissue of a fatal case earlier this year in a 60-year-old Saudi Arabian national. The two were almost identical, it said. Coronaviruses are a large family of viruses, which include the common cold and SARS. End quote. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm quivering in my boots at the face of this pandemic, the likes of which hasn't been seen since the last one occurred in 2002 that killed 800 people. 800, I tell you. Well, I'm not here to make light of a situation that could potentially be very serious, but I think we would be best served to take some of this news with a tiny grain of salt, considering the blind alleys and the uh, the primrose paths that the WHO has been leading people down for far too long with their ability to declare pandemic, their ability to say what is or is not a pandemic, and their ability to thereby necessitate the the basically going into action of all of the the vaccine manufacturers around the world uh, and and necessitating governments to buy those stockpiles in the, in the face of whatever the WHO declares to be a serious pandemic threat so the, let's be clear on this there's no there's no indication yet that there's any vaccination scheme or anything behind this uh, latest outbreak that's supposedly going around but this is one of a type of story that i've seen come up again and again and again and again and again in recent years and it kind of just bubbles under the surface usually and usually it doesn't turn into a big pandemic so it doesn't really get as many headlines as as you would think but these types of stories are coming up time and again so for example new aids like disease found in us and Asia, or researchers say new AIDS-like mystery disease is not contagious. Well, there, relief. Uh, Investigators probe mystery disease killing Cambodian children, and then later on, Cambodian mystery illness tied to common childhood disease. Okay, well, uh, mystery disease devastates northern Uganda. 
And later on, it's tied back to mystery disease in Ethiopia solved, linked to weed toxin. So there's a number of things going on here, but I think it's interesting how we're being fed a steady stream, a steady diet of these mystery disease stories, and one is just waiting for the next big swine flu pandemic hoax to come along. And that, my friends, was a billion-dollar hoax, in fact, a multi-billion-dollar hoax that was force-fed to the public just a few short years ago. So tonight on the program, we're going to be delving back into that history and what is the real pandemic threat. Let's take a moment. We'll be right back after these messages. here on Corbett Report Radio, and tonight we're talking about this newest threat to human species that is coming from this latest unidentified coronavirus that has recently been discovered in a Qatari man that looks similar to one that was in a Saudi Arabian man earlier this year and resulted in the Saudi Arabian man's death. So the World Health Organization has issued a global alert over this. And you can go and read about this under headlines such as UN Issues Global Alert Over New SARS-Like Virus. And you can marvel and tremble in your boots at the uh, at the idea that there's a new coronavirus out there. And once again, I'm not making light of what could be a dangerous situation, but I am saying that if the concatenation of WHO and world pandemic threat doesn't at least... I don't know, make you chuckle in an absurd, morbid way or or cringe, perhaps more appropriately, then perhaps you haven't been paying attention. And of course, this goes back to the, the example that I'm sure we are all still familiar with and still have fresh in our minds from just a few short years ago when... When swine flu fever gripped the world, it was a panic. It was such a scare. We were all scared to death of this flu, which caused less deaths than the average flu. It was, in fact, an extremely mild version of the flu. But somehow, and for some reason, despite the fact it was extremely mild and not particularly contagious, it was enough to set off a global pandemic crisis initiated by the WHO and its little definition of uh, pandemic that then necessitated governments around the world due to uh, agreements that they already had in place with the WHO to start buying the vaccines from the vaccine manufacturers to counter this pandemic threat. And not even getting into the hoax that is the flu vaccines and how they are uh, either, well, in either they're not attuned to whatever the, the current strain of the virus is, or more, more, more to the point, uh, they actually tend to confer flu susceptibility and even flu to people rather than protect them from it. But let's not even get into that particular aspect of the debate. The fact is that governments around the world spent billions and billions and billions of dollars of their taxpayer money on these vaccines that proved to be completely and utterly unnecessary. So we have to be a little bit suspicious, quizzical, and skeptical when we hear about the latest sensation-grabbing headline about the latest killer virus sweeping the world. And unfortunately, we've been being prepped for a long time to accept that the next big pandemic is coming. It is inevitable. It's going to kill vast swaths of the population, and we have to give up 
everything, all our rights, all our money, all our freedoms, and our health uh, to give it up to the medical professionals and whatever they say in the event of whatever they declare to be the next pandemic. Because, as I say, we've been conditioned into accepting that this is just the inevitable reality for so long. And not only through the Hollywood conditioning and the propaganda through the popular entertainment that I think we've all seen over the past several years of all these contagion and virus uh, stories and all of that sort of thing, but, but also in the straight news, the serious news. So, for example, I just, I'll pick a couple of examples out of thin air, but I'm sure if you've been paying even even some glancing attention to the mainstream media. You've seen examples of this over the years, too. But let's take one example from The Telegraph back in 2008, which carried this story, Disease Pandemic Inevitable in Britain, warns House of Lords. Changes in lifestyle are leading to new infections and providing them with an opportunity to spread rapidly, the report warns. An outbreak in Britain will cause massive disruption, it concludes. More should be done to provide early warnings. The Lord's Intergovernmental Organizations Committee says the dysfunctional World Health Organization needs to be better organized to cope with the threat. The peers described the government's evidence to it as sobering. They were told by ministers, while there has not been a pandemic since 1968, another one is inevitable. Estimates are that the next pandemic will kill between 2 million and 50 million people worldwide, and between 50,000 and 75,000 in the UK. Socioeconomic disruption will be massive. The committee says that with three-quarters of newly emerging human affections originating from animals, more stringent ways of detecting diseases are needed. All right, we'll end the quote there. It's a typical cookie-cutter story of the next pandemic threat. And again, I'm sure you've seen examples of this over and over and over in the last several years in the media, talking about the inevitable, inevitable threat of the next pandemic. And I suppose, given a long enough timeline and assuming we don't uh, annihilate the Earth with uh, nuclear weapons or, you know, or harp technology or GMOs or whatever the next big threat to the world is, assuming we don't all die in some fiery death in the next few years, yes, I'm sure a pandemic will be inevitable at some point. They have happened in the past. They have swept through populations. They have taken vast numbers of lives, and I'm sure it will happen again at some point. But it's very bizarre to me that there's these these government reports like this one that's being talked about in this Telegraph uh, article that somehow they don't know anything about what this pandemic will be, what per- particular strain of what particular virus it will be, what mutations it will have, how it will operate, how it will act on the human body, what effects it will have. They know nothing about this. It's just saying, well, a pandemic is going to happen. And yet they can predict 50,000 to 75,000 deaths in the UK and up to 50 million worldwide. Well, that's a pretty, pretty accurate prediction. I mean, that, that doesn't leave a lot of room for error, I suppose, given, uh, given how their, their precise range that they're offering there. How do they know exactly how many people this is going to kill? Well, of course, it's just to give people an idea of, oh, this is a threat and it's going to kill thousands of people. We should pay attention to it. It's, you know, it's bigger than 9-11, I guess, would be the way it would be phrased in the, in the United States. But this is, uh, again, this is total pipe dream stuff that's just being imagined up by some governmental committee as a way of getting the public attention focused back on the issue in order to draw attention and funds, of course, back into the problem so that they can take this money and, and reorganize the WHO or whatever they say is going to fix this supposed threat. 
And in some ways, I think it is good for us to be aware of potential threats down the road. But of course, when it is being directed by government officials who have a vested interest in collecting public funds to disperse them as they will towards the problems as they see them, usually headed by uh, the solution committees, headed by their friends, uh, it tends to become a, a slightly problematic association. And that's why I think we have to be skeptical and quizzical when we hear about these new disease threats. So let's take a look at just just one more example, because again, as I say, there are many examples, but here's the latest in case you haven't heard, and this comes from WebMD.com, so it must be serious. Seal flu, next pandemic threat? That's right, in July of 2012, they came out with this article. A new and virulent subtype of flu bug has emerged among harbor seals in New England, researchers report. Over a four-month period beginning last September, 162 harbor seals were found dead or dying along the coast of New England. An investigation by renowned virus hunter W. Ian Lipkin, M.D., of Columbia University, identified the killer, a mutant flu bug transmitted to the seal by seabirds. Virus isolated from the seals had undergone a series of important mutations. It became able to spread among mammals, or at least from seal to seal. It became able to infect the seals' airways, destroying lung tissue or opening the door to fatal secondary infections, and it became more virulent. So this article goes on to liken it to the pandemics we've seen in the past emerging from animal populations and spreading into human populations and becoming the killer pandemic that killed X number of millions of people in the past. And uh, when you actually break it down, all they're saying is that there's a new flu that's spreading among seals in New England Harbor that uh, that spreads from seal to seal and, and at least has the potential to kill some of the seals that it infects. And uh, yes, I suppose we can certainly imagine that this could theoretically spread into the human population if it makes the right mutations and spreads in the right way. And if it is the right type of virus that, that spreads in the right conditions and it is contagious enough, then it will spread quickly. But if it's too contagious, those tend to be uh, less fatal. So there's a there's a kind of balance between contagiousness and fatality and all of this. But if it's just right, it might be attuned to the human population and adjust and mutate in just the right way to cause a killer pandemic. So we should all be afraid. Again, these are the types of scenarios that I agree the medical community, the health community, the scientific community should be looking into and should be thinking about because they do present potential threats. But when it gets into the hands of the media and when it gets into governmental organizations that claim to be able to provide solutions for these problems, that's when we get a problem. And that's exactly what happened back in the 2009 swine flu pandemic crisis initiated by the WHO, by their cronies on their advisory panel for their pandemic threat, who then were actually sitting on the boards of some of the vaccine manufacturers who then directly benefited from that declaration of pandemic. Funny how these things work, isn't it? And it's it's just oh so shocking, color me shocked, that when you give these people these positions of power in which they can actually start these these gears into motion that will necessitate billions and billions of dollars flowing into these companies, that they then go and sit on the boards of those companies and, hey, maybe cut a deal behind closed doors. Oh, no, that's a conspiracy theory. Don't talk about that. That's That's just crazy talk. No one would ever do that that to enlarge their bank account by a few bill. Um, And again, this is not some crazy conspiracy theory. It has been talked about by the Council of Europe, and there was a large investigation into the WHO crisis, which we'll talk about later. 
But first up, we're going to take a break, and when we come back from this break, we're going to listen to the audio of a video that I did for for GRTV back uh, earlier this year, talking about, well, the real pandemic threat as I see it, or at least one of them. Because yes, certainly animal-to-human natural spreading can happen, and it has happened in the past, and there are those types of diseases and pandemics, and bubonic plague was not a government conspiracy, etc., etc. But... Now scientists are starting to engineer and tinker with viruses and find out their genome and find out how they spread and publish those results widely online. And then afterwards fret about, well, what if this information gets into the wrong hands? Well, again, it's a question of who are the wrong hands. And I think, well, pretty much any government in the world I wouldn't trust with this type of type of technology. But that's the world we're living in. So let's take a short break. We'll come back with that GRTV video. And then we'll continue talking about the real pandemic threats. Mass panic over bird flu experiments. Governments remain biggest sponsors of bioterror. This is Behind the Headlines on grtv.ca. The U.S. National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity made the unprecedented decision last month to call for the censorship of a pair of papers in scientific journals that describe how to make a novel, human-transmissible form of bird flu that could kill unprecedented numbers of people. The studies conducted by two independent teams of researchers in the Netherlands, the U.S., and Japan, concluded that it was possible to mutate ordinary H5N1 avian flu virus into an aerosol-transmissible form that could spread easily and rapidly through the air. According to Dr. Ron Fouchier at the Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam, we have discovered that this is indeed possible, and more easily than previously thought. Defenders of the research have noted that these studies could help scientists detect the early stages of the development of such a supervirus in nature. Detractors countered that the research could give bioterrorists the knowledge they need to create an extremely deadly bioweapon. The National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity shares such concerns over the findings, advising the U.S. government to ask the journals preparing to publish the research, Nature and Science, to censor all details of the methodology used to mutate the virus into its deadly form. What few reports on the scientific scandal have noted is that the NSABB itself was born in the wake of the 2001 anthrax attacks on the United States, an attack that was immediately blamed on Islamic terrorists and succeeded in shutting down the U.S. Congress for the first time in modern history. That attack eliminated all opposition to the Patriot Act, which was passed at the height of the scandal. It was subsequently found to have been an inside job sourcing back to the U.S. government-administered Ames strain, used in its own seldom-acknowledged biowarfare program. The FBI learned of the origin of the anthrax attack in the U.S. military research program on October 5, 2001, but five days later allowed the original batch of Ames strain at Iowa State University to be destroyed, thereby making their own investigation even more difficult. After spending years falsely accusing Stephen Hatfield, a bioweapons expert, with perpetrating the crime, they eventually pinned the blame on U.S. AMRID researcher Bruce Ivins, who supposedly killed himself with an overdose of Tylenol and codeine just two days before he and his attorney were to meet with the FBI to face the accusation that he had engineered the anthrax attack. Ivins left no suicide note, no autopsy was performed on his body, and in the immediate wake of his death, the FBI pronounced the case closed. 
What the attack and its subsequent cover-up exposed was the vast, murky underworld of government-sponsored biowarfare research that had been taking place covertly and illegally since the signing of a 1972 treaty forbidding the development of bioweapons. The program was exposed on September 4, 2011, just one week before 9-11, in the New York Times, in an article noting how the Pentagon had used the bioweapon ban treaty's exception for defense research to proceed with increasingly dangerous experiments including the creation of genetically engineered, extremely potent anthrax spores. The article, entitled U.S. Germ Warfare Research Pushes Treaty Limits, also noted how numerous Clinton and Bush administration insiders worried that their experimentation was in fact a full-fledged biowarfare program of the kind specifically forbidden by the treaty. Now the government is professing fear of what terrorists would do with the details of a potential bioweapon like weaponized bird flu. However, in the wake of the H1N1 hysteria of 2009, a public health scare that the Council of Europe concluded was due at least in part to the professional links of their advisors to the very vaccine manufacturers who profited from the scare, the pieces were put into place to ensure that the next pandemic, whether the result of bioterrorism or random natural mutation, grants the government even more power to enact what amounts to medical martial law. Numerous state legislatures in the U.S. passed a Model State Emergency Health Powers Act in the wake of the swine flu scare that allows the government to enforce invasive medical interventions, including forcible confinement and mandatory vaccinations in the event of a declared state of emergency. At the height of the scare, the CDC even proposed that it be given the power to appoint workplace coordinators at private companies to dictate business response to a declared pandemic. Regarding the latest H5N1 superflu research, the NSABB is now debating whether to call for a voluntary moratorium on the publication of all such research until it can be decided how the scientific community should proceed with publication. That vote is expected to occur later this month. NSABB chair Paul Keim was quoted as saying, It is time for us to have a broad and global discussion on the issue. For more on this story and other breaking news and current events, please go to globalresearch.ca. For more research and analysis by James Corbett, please go to corbettreport.com. It don't mean a thing. All you gotta do is swing. All right, friends, welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. And just before the uh, the break there, we were listening to a GRTV video that I did earlier this year about some experiments that some scientists have been doing into uh, bird transmissible bird flu and put publishing those results and whether or not they should be allowed to publish those results, etc. And, of course, uh, many people wringing their hands about, well, what if the terrorists, what if the wrong people get their hands on this uh, technology? Well, it's a question of how you define the terrorists. Who are the wrong people to get their hands on? on this technology, and as I hope that that video effectively outlines, the real terrorists are the ones with the bio-warfare programs funded by your tax dollars, and they're the ones who have been secretly creating all of these concoctions behind the scenes that somehow or other end up killing people in the anthrax attacks that get blamed on Al-Qaeda and get the uh, Patriot Act passed through Congress without so much as anyone reading it. But, uh, oh, when you actually start to investigate it, oh, yeah, that sources back to the AIM strain that was uh, created in U.S. government laboratories. 
Hmm, funny how that works. So I think we have to keep our eyes on the real prize and realize that when the government is pointing one finger at us as the suspected potential terrorists, they have three fingers pointing back at them. So let's start examining some of the real threats here. And first, let's go into that 2009 swine flu pandemic. Let's not dance around it because there is a a very serious thing that happened there and we have to understand how it happened And probably the best way to understand how it happened and what happened in what way is to go to the WHO itself. They have a post up on their very own website from the uh, Bulletin of the World Health Organization from uh, March of 2011, where they published an article by Peter Doshi called The Elusive Definition of Pandemic Influenza. And it talks about this definition that uh, the WHO uses for their declaration of pandemic, etc., that was mysteriously altered one month before the swine flu pandemic began. Hmm, interesting. Well, let's take a listen to that part of the controversy. So it says, quote, Since 2003, the top of the WHO pandemic preparedness homepage has contained the following statement. An influenza pandemic occurs when a new influenza virus appears against which the human population has no immunity, resulting in several simultaneous epidemics worldwide with enormous numbers of deaths and illnesses. However, on the 4th of March 2009, scarcely one month before the H1N1 pandemic was declared, the webpage was altered in response to a query from a CNN reporter. The phrase, enormous numbers of deaths and illness, had been removed, and the revised webpage simply read as follows. An influenza pandemic may occur when a new influenza virus appears against which the human population has no immunity. Months later, the Council of Europe would cite this alteration as evidence that the WHO changed its definition of pandemic influenza to enable it to declare a pandemic without having to demonstrate the intensity of the disease caused by the H1N1 virus. Harvey Feinberg, chairman of the WHO-appointed International Health Regulations Review Committee that evaluated WHO's response to the H1N1 influenza pandemic, identified the definition of pandemic influenza as a critical element of our review. Duh. In a draft report released in March, the committee faulted WHO for inadequately dispelling confusion about the definition of a pandemic and noted WHO's reluctance to acknowledge its part in allowing misunderstanding of the webpage alteration, which WHO has characterized as a change in the description, but not in the definition of pandemic influenza. It's not a definition, but we recognize that it could be taken as such. It was the fault of ours confusing descriptions and definitions, a WHO communications officer declared. Indeed, the Council of Europe was not alone in claiming that the definition had been changed. WHO argues that this phrase, which could be more neutrally referred to as a description definition, had little bearing on policy responses. A WHO press release states that it was never part of the formal definition of a pandemic and was never sent to member states, but simply appeared in a document on WHO's website for some months. In actuality, the description definition was displayed at the top of the WHO Pandemic Preparedness homepage for over six years and is consistent with the descriptions of pandemic influenza put forth in various WHO policy documents over the years. However, while the original description definition unambiguously describes disease severity and certainly reflects general assumptions about pandemic influenza before novel H1N1 emerged, it is unrelated to the criteria WHO applied to declare H1N1 influenza a pandemic. 
So long story short, they had this definition that relied on the the clause that uh, that there had to be a large number of deaths and illnesses resulting from this disease. And they took that clause out one month before this swine flu pandemic started spreading across the globe. And uh, that's that's just one of those things that happens. And, of course, it's just a description definition. It's not a definition definition. So it didn't really affect the WHO's policies or its responses, but it might have might have just confused the public a little with that whole what is a pandemic thing. I mean, f- that's not really important. The important thing is to get every media outlet in the world blaring in big headlines, pandemic sweeping the world. Pandemic is going to kill us all. Pandemic! So that's exactly how that scam worked. And then, uh, well, they say that they didn't rely on that description for any of the policies that were implemented as a result of this pandemic. So what really was uh, behind this? How did they decide what was a pandemic and what wasn't? Well, back in 2010, the whole story started to unravel when some critics stepped forward about the way that uh, the WHO declared the swine flu pandemic an, an emergency and how they, they sorted out what level it was, etc. And basically you had some, some insiders and others who were uh, familiar with how this process worked saying that it was absolutely a result of the ties between the people on the advisory panel who recommended the pandemic uh, declaration and the vaccine manufacturers on whose boards they sat. And so, for example, um, back in 2010, you can go back to the Mail Online, they have a, a breakdown of this. Drug firms drove swine flu pandemic warning to recoup billions of pounds spent on research. Billions of dollars, billions of pounds. And uh, this goes uh, on to, to start talking about uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Wolfgang Wodarg, the former head of the Council of Health at the Council of Europe, um, and he started talking about this in early, late 2009, early 2010, and it says here, drug companies which, which spent up to 2.5 billion pounds developing a vaccine then push, pu- push their interests within the WHO, leading to the definition of a pandemic being softened and an outbreak declared. He told the hearing, Wolfgang Wodarg, that is, told the hearing, it was stated in panic-stricken terms that this was a flu that could threaten humanity and a great number of humans could fall ill. This is why billions of dollars of medications were bought. And that's pretty much it. I mean, that that is where where it goes back to. And if you want more of the analysis that actually came out of the Council of Europe's investigation, which was eventually released in June of 2010, you can actually go to the Council of Europe's website, assembly.coe.int, and they have a link there to this uh, press release that was uh, around something that they, uh, a report that they released in June uh, handling of the H1N1 pandemic pace, the uh, the uh, Council of European Parliamentary Assembly calls for safeguards against undue influence by vested interests, and it just goes on to state that the uh, the assembly set out a series of urgent recommendations for greater transparency and better governance in public health, as well as safeguards against what is called what it called undue influence by vested interests. It called for a public fund to support independent research, trials, and expert advice. 
possibly financed by an obligatory contribution of the pharmaceutical industry. It also called the media to avoid sensationalism and scaremongering in the public health domain. Yes, calling on the media to avoid sensationalism and scaremongering in the public domain is like asking a bear not to defecate in the woods. Good luck with that. But uh, that's how it goes, and that's how billion-dollar scams are perpetrated on the public in full view of everyone. And, um, and unfortunately, it continues to work. And now I guess the uh, the next stage of this scam is, of course, to take all of the hype that they've been carefully preparing for a long time and potentially, hey, there's your next false flag if you ever need to pull something out of your hat or uh, any other orifice where you might be keeping something of need. If you want to pull it out and use it at any time, it's always there. It's always up the sleeve. It's always ready to use. And uh, just as uh, the Al-Qaeda boogeyman served its purpose for a good decade before they put that ghost to bed with the killing of Osama bin Laden and his dumping of his body in the the ocean. And for those of you not watching the video, just imagine my scare quotation marks. Um, I, well, just as the, uh, the Al-Qaeda boogeyman came and went, so too is the pandemic boogeyman, all, all there waiting on deck and ready to unleash. And unfortunately, the, the scariest part of all of this is that the real terrorists really do have their access to the technology that really can create the next pandemic. And by the real terrorists, of course, I mean the governments of the world that hold their populations as hostages um, and basically uh, have the, the ever, always the possibility, always the opportunity, always the motive to create big scares in order to get the public to do whatever it wants. So let's start breaking this down, and this goes back to a story that's been developing over the past decade, and I'm sure some of you have heard about this, but here's a good source on actually talking about it. It's from the Sunshine Project, which was a very valuable resource and information about biowarfare and the biowarfare programs of various governments that unfortunately was discontinued, I guess, from lack of funding, etc. So that's very unfortunate, but their website is still up, and they have a lot of archived uh, stories, such as this one from the 9th of October, 2003, Recreating the Spanish Flu. Influenza as a bioweapon does not sound like a particularly grave threat. Annual outbreaks kill many people, particularly the elderly. But a case of the flu is generally perceived as an uncomfortable nuisance rather than a grave threat. But flu viruses can be devastating. In 1918 and 1919, the so-called Spanish flu killed an estimated 20 to 40 million people worldwide, and since then, the highly changeable flu virus has resurfaced in a variety of particularly virulent forms. The strain of influenza virus that caused the 1918 global epidemic, pandemic, was exceptionally aggressive. It showed a high capacity to cause severe disease and a propensity to kill fit young adults rather than the elderly. The mortality rate among the infected was over 2.5% as compared to less than 0.1% in other influenza epidemics. This high mortality rate, especially among the younger, lowered the average life expectancy in the USA by almost 10 years. Creation of this particularly dangerous influenza strain, as it is currently pursued by a U.S. research team, may thus pose a serious biowarfare threat. A recent commentary in the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine noted that influenza is readily transmissible by aerosol and that a small number of viruses can cause a full-blown infection. The authors continued, the possibility for genetic engineering and aerosol transmission of influenza suggests an enormous potential for bioterrorism. The possible hostile abuse of influenza virus is seen as a very real threat by public health officials in the USA, 
Just two weeks ago, $15 million was granted by the U.S. National Institute of Health to Stanford University to study how to guard against the flu virus if it were to be unleashed as an agent of bioterrorism. U.S. scientists led by a Pentagon pathologist recently began to genetically reconstruct this specifically dangerous 1918 influenza strain. In one experiment, a partially reconstructed 1918 virus killed mice, while virus constructed with genes from a contemporary flu virus had hardly any effect. Attempts to recover the Spanish flu virus date back to the 1950s, when scientists unsuccessfully tried to revive the virus from victims buried in the permafrost of Alaska. In the mid-1990s, Dr. Jeffrey Taubenberger of, uh, Ber- of the U.S. Armed Forces Institute of Pathology started to screen preserved tissue samples from 1918 influenza victims. It appears that this work was not triggered by a search for flu treatments or the search for a new biowarfare agent, but by a rather simple motivation. Taubenberger and his team were just able to do it. In previous experiments, they had developed a new technique to analyze DNA in old preserved tissues and, for now, looking for new applications. The 1918 flu was by far and away the most interesting thing we could think of, explained Taubenberger, as the reason why he started to unravel the secrets of one of the deadliest viruses known to mankind. We'll end the quote there. The article goes on, and it contains a lot of valuable information about these experiments that were being conducted by the Pentagon Institute of Pathology. That's uh, an interesting organization to be randomly digging up the 1918 influenza virus, one of the deadliest viruses in the history of humankind, just because we can. Well, that's uh, that's either chilling because it shows an absolute total disregard for the potential effects of that research, or it's a complete lie, in which case it's also chilling. So either way, I think we have to be very concerned about that type of attitude. But it's interesting going back from our current perspective in 2012 and taking a look at that particular article because it it contains within it a lot of uh, clues that we were in a very different age even as little as nine years ago when this article was written. Uh, They had to explain that pandemic means global epidemic as if if anyone in today's age wouldn't know what a pandemic means. Or they have to, uh, to justify why why, why even bother talking about this? Influenza as a bioweapon does not sound like a particularly grave threat. Well, after 10, 11 years of indoctrination about bioterrorism and biowarfare and how we're all pro- probably going to die in some future pandemic, uh, we don't any longer need to start articles of this nature with an explanation of why influenza pandemic is, is a potential threat. So we have been conditioned over the past decade very much to accept this, and I hope people are aware of that, and when they see these Hollywood blockbusters, etc., that come out, these best-selling thrillers by, you know, the, the best-selling thrillers, writers about the possibility of global uh, pandemics and killing millions of people and all of this. I think we should be aware that we are being conditioned to accept this idea and as part of that predictive programming that makes it all seem just so familiar when it actually starts to happen. Well, I always knew the terrorists would get their hands on these weapons one day and they'd start releasing them in those controlled releases, but Thank God for the government coming in and stepping in with their medical martial law, quarantining those areas, sealing those people in, and force medicating them. That was what did the trick, and that's what made everything all better. And if you think I'm just pulling this out of a hat, unfortunately, I think this is very much where things are going and where things have been 
self-consciously positioned to to go the uh, just like in every other potential false flag scenario all of the the trap doors that will suddenly spring open when and if this idea is launched have already been carefully prepared lovingly crafted so that we will fall through them when and if the time comes and on that note medical martial law is at the very least one thing that we should have our eyes on as a potential threat to come from this bioterror threat and uh, once again, it's in the hands of the real terrorists who have their fingers and hands on the levers of power in government that can tell you and I what to do and force medicate us and do whatever they want with us. So if you're not familiar with that concept of medical martial law and what that entails, well, let's take a short break. But when we come back, we'll f- come back to wrap things up talking about medical martial law, what prep- preparations have been made for the next big pandemic that is uh, that comes along, whether natural or man-made, and what you and I can and should be doing about all of this mess. It's not a pretty big picture, but we'll continue painting it when we come back after these messages. The pandemic hype feeds into so many different agendas, doesn't it, ladies and gentlemen? It fits into those agendas so well. And there is, of course, the ever-present overpopulation, depopulation agenda that is the quest of these eugenics-obsessed would-be elites, the parasites at the top of the system, who truly do want to get rid of vast swaths of the globe, and if they can do that through creating a pandemic or allowing one to spread or doing whatever they can to make sure that the next one is a big one, then that's something that we have to be concerned about, especially when you have people like Prince Philip wishing most fervently of all that he could be reincarnated as some sort of killer bug so that he could come back and contribute something to the cause of overpopulation. Um, Just interesting little uh, tidbits like that that should at least keep us on our toes. But not only does it fit into the depopulation agenda, this pandemic hype itself is also setting the stage for what could be the next phase of the totalitarian tyranny that is tiptoeing its way into our gardens. And that is medical martial law. Once again, if this is a phrase that you're not familiar with, I suggest you scroogle it. Oh, wait, there is no scroogle anymore. Well, startpage.com. And take a look at what that phrase is and what it means. And hey, if you're on CorbettReport.com, just type that into the search bar and you'll find some of the work that I've done on this issue over the years, including episode 86 of my podcast that I released back in 2009 during the height of the swine flu pandemic scare hype. And in that episode of my podcast, I broke down all of this, what what this is about, what this medical martial law is, how it's being instituted in state after state at the time in 2009 in the wake of the pandemic uh, scare about the swine flu, state after state was passing these emergency uh, acts that would allow the state to come in and de- declare um, pandemic emergencies that would allow them to do things like force medicate you or to uh, quarantine you or whatever they need to do. And uh, and whatever the, the medical benefits of, of having 
having things like quarantines, etc., might be, when you start putting those powers in the hands of a government that has been true, proven time and time again to lie and to break the public trust and to abuse that trust for its own political purposes, i.e. the very definition of terrorism, then you are giving the terrorists the very tools that they need to commit more terror. So I think we have to think a little bit more strongly about whether we want to place those powers in the hands of our so-called elected leaders. And uh, just an example of that, of course, Massachusetts uh, cleared a bill in the wake of that swine flu scare that had a lot of those medical martial law provisions. And this all stems back to something called the the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act. So that I have linked up in that episode 86 of my podcast, and you can go, and this is draft legislation that over 40 states have uh, adopted by now that allows for quarantines and mandated vaccinations and all sorts of other abuses of uh, individual rights and freedoms in the event of any publicly declared emergency. And oh, on the note of publicly declared emergencies, let's just add in this little tidbit because I guess it's very apropos. Guess what the White House did back in September, earlier this month, uh, for the 11th straight year? That's right, they declared another state of emergency based on 9-11. Every single year since 9-11, the president has renewed the state of emergency that was first called into action on September, I believe it was first invoked on September 14th, 2001, but has been renewed every single year. So 9-11 is not just the anniversary of that tragic event, it's also the anniversary of the complete takeover and subsumation of any thought that there is a democracy or any people's input in the United States government. It's all being run by a few cronies under continuity of government programming. So, on that dour note, we're going to have to leave it there because we're fresh out of time. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Thanking you for joining me. Thanking you for all those orders of the Last Word DVD. I'm getting to them and burning them off on my Mac here as fast as I can. And I will get yours out as soon as I can. So thank you for those orders. Looking forward to talking to you all again tomorrow night. So until then, thanks for listening. Take care. 